It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you. Christmas weekend. Christmas weekend. The birth of Jesus. The birth of my Lord Jesus. And uh, hundreds of millions of people around the globe. We're going to talk some politics on the show. We're going to talk some economics. We're going to do some stock market work. We're going to do all kinds of things nice and leisurely on a holiday weekend. Start off with um, some very good news last night. The Supreme Court spurns Jack Smith. Justices decided not to expedite a Trump legal appeal against the special counsel's uh, Jan 6 prosecution. I mean, this guy, uh, Smith, he's tried to wrap it up <laughs> before the election, before the primaries, before Super Tuesday, and uh, the justices declined his petition for a quick review. So, no, no fast decision. Purely political, that's what Smith is. Purely political. And as we've talked about so many times on this show, and on the TV show, by the way, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., named the show's Cudlow. I'll be off next week. Uh, probably my pal uh, David Asman will be on and others, but we'll, uh, we'll resume after January 2nd, on January 2nd. But um, this whole business, throwing, uh, trying to throw Donald Trump in jail for 700 years, trying to make the case against him before the elections, trying to do everything they can to stop him from winning the primaries, which I believe he's going to win. We will have uh, we'll have Roger Stone on the show later on. We're going to have Joe Concha and Mark Simone on the show later on to talk about all this stuff. But basically, Trump won a good one. And they're going to have to go through some kind of process. Back to the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and then they'll go to the Supreme Court. D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I think, is a pretty liberal court, so don't look for much relief there. But um, Mr. Trump uh, is pleading presidential immunity. I think that's a very strong case. He's pleading First Amendment, uh, First Amendment free speech. I think that's a pretty strong case. There may be a double jeopardy case in there. Uh, Democratic Congress uh, impeached him, but the Senate acquitted him. So <laughs> I think he has a very strong case against all these lawsuits. But here's what's really super interesting about this. We did a Fox Business poll. Okay, we did a Fox Business poll. Uh, I covered it this week uh, on Thursday night. And... First of all, Trump's got a huge lead in Iowa. He's over the 50% mark in Iowa. He's got a 35-point lead against um, his closest opponents, uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis. But what was so interesting in this poll is 
that people really weren't very worried about these law suits, these political attacks, these election interferences. I'll just read you this part of the poll. By the way, these are likely caucus voters. I mean, the caucuses are only a couple weeks away. But um, when it comes to January 6th and efforts to overturn 2020 election, Trump did dot, 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 something illegal, only 16%, something wrong, 21%, nothing seriously wrong, 58%. So almost three-fifths said, no, not important. I think that's been my take all along, that the left-wing media is playing this thing up all these political lawsuits as Joe Biden tries to throw Donald Trump in jail for 700 years. But the rest of the public, I mean, maybe some people are concerned about it, but almost 60% in Iowa, you know, Iowa's kind of a mainstream, middle America state. And they're basically saying, we don't care. We don't care. And, you know, my view on this has always been and will continue to be that Mr. Trump has these big leads in the polls. Now, I know polls are not votes, but they're pretty good snapshots. And this Fox Business poll is a very good poll. So I say likely caucus goers. And you're only three weeks away. He's winning on the issues. He's winning on the issues. He's winning on the economic issues. He's especially winning on the border issues. He's winning on foreign policy issues. Incidentally, in Iowa, and again, I think the Iowa story is uh, very important. It's apocryphal. The economy is still number one. But uh, let me look at this, get my pages out. Um, where is it? Where is it? Here we are. Economic issues. In September, economic issues, 46%, number one. Now, in this latest poll, economic issues are still number one, but they're 38%. Here's the big change. Immigration issues. Biden's massive, massive illegal immigration. I mean, it's over 10,000 a day. So that, uh, in September, 15% thought that was the most important issue. Here in December, 27%. It's up 12 points. So that just goes to show, and there's nobody stronger than Donald Trump on the border issues. I mean, that was a signature issue when he was president. He had great success building the wall, remain in Mexico, uh, Title 42, getting the Mexican government to cooperate with us. Originally, they didn't want to help us. Mr. Trump threatened to 
you know, increase their tariffs on automobile manufacturing exports to the United States would have destroyed their economy. And so, lo and behold, they came around and uh, gave 35,000 troops or some such thing, and all of a sudden they helped us. This was Trump. Joe Biden, of course, overturned that. Biden and the left wing of the Democratic Party are all for open borders. Yes, they are. They continue to be for open borders. Every single spokesman said we're doing everything we can. No, they're not. Everybody knows that. There has to be big changes. The uh, foreign aid supplemental, $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel and a small amount of money for the border. They can't get it through. No deal because the Republicans standing up on their hind legs and they're fighting it for a change. Republicans in the Senate, of course, Republicans in the House passed H.R. 2, which is essentially the Trump blueprint. So my points are several here. Number one, it's not about these phony political uh, law cases, court cases, indictments. Everybody sees right through that in Iowa. Almost 60% don't care. All right, nothing wrong. Point number two, this has been an issues campaign, and it will remain an issues campaign. Former President Trump has done a great job on these issues. Drill, baby, drill, open the spigots for fossil fuels, sustain and extend the Trump tax cuts, roll back all the crazy Biden regulations against business, especially small business, fight inflation. These are all key Trump issues. He's campaigned on them for a year. And the results show. The polls show. Again, polls not votes, but they are sure an indication that people know that Mr. Trump has done this before. He ran a successful economy. He protected the border. He kept us out of war. He kept oil prices and gasoline prices and grocery prices low. He increased real wages. He did it once, and people are coming around to the view that, yes, he's the right guy to do it again. They don't want Biden's big government socialism. They don't want it. They don't want Biden's socialist Green New Deal. They don't want to be told that they can't have all these appliances in their homes. They don't want to be told that they can't ever drive a gasoline-powered car again. They don't want to be forced into electric vehicles. All these things, every one of them. Mr. Trump has campaigned on them. He continues to campaign on them. The country wants a completely different direction. That's what these polls are showing. It's not about these phony court cases, these trumped-up charges. And by the way, make no mistake about it. Joe Biden is calling the shots and pulling the strings on all this legal nonsense, using his Justice Department, using special counsels, using lawsuits in New York City and Georgia and places like that. This is the Biden senior staff. This is Biden himself trying to stop Trump from running. 
And these polls show it ain't working. And I don't think it's going to work. In fact, Biden's got his own problems. You watch and see. Wait. Legally. Legally. Where did all this money come from? Where did all these check-kiting come from? Where did all these influence-peddling remunerations come from? Where did the bribery come from? The Hunter Biden scandals and the Hunter Biden little companies that he formed. It's not about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden getting money. And those issues are going to grow. It's already having an impact. Those are real issues. Those are impeachable issues. They may not be conviction issues because the clock will run out. But Mr. Biden, lying through his teeth, of course he was involved in his son's operations and businesses. Of course he was involved financially. 10% for the big guy. And Jamie Comer of the Oversight Committee has now found checks that show 10% for the big guy. Where'd that money come from? why that money come from? So, I think going into the Iowa caucuses, we're just a couple of weeks away, Mr. Trump is in pretty good shape. But my key point here at the opening, and I'm going to talk some more about this, he's doing it on the issues. And that is the best way to do it. In politics... Issues and policies and messaging are everything. The money follows the issues. And right now, it looks like this country believes in Trump and that he is the right guy for these issues. I call it Trump tough. Trump tough. More on that in just a minute. Let me take a quick break. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Trump tough. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. I want to talk some more about Trump tough. Because I think that's part of this uh, tremendous polling that's showing uh, that he's the odds-on favorite to win the GOP nomination and to defeat uh, President Biden. Joe Biden has shown himself to be a weakling. A weakling on almost everything. No, on everything. A complete weakling. Somebody who is um, beholden to the democratic far-left socialist wing of the party and somebody who's afraid of his own shadow when it comes to foreign policy. What he did in cutting and running in Afghanistan, for example, what he did uh, with uh, Putin, what he's failed to do with Putin, what he failed to do at the very beginning of the outbreak of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And now in the Middle East, uh, these uh, Iranian-backed terrorist groups firing a 100 times against U.S. military assets, ships mostly. He won't make a tough decision. 
Not once. He won't fire back. I think people are sick of that. And I think people want a strong leader like Trump. As I said earlier on all these issues, they know that Trump did this stuff once and he'll do it again. They want a president who will take out a Soleimani, the former Iranian strongman who ran all the terrorist operations. Now dead. Or al-Baghdadi. Or crushing ISIS in Syria. Or cutting taxes. Or fighting all the greenies to keep as much fossil fuel production as possible. So gasoline prices were under $2 a gallon. They've come down. They're over $3 now. They were 5 but that's still a lot more than $2 a gallon. By the way, low energy prices were a big factor in keeping the inflation rate down. They want a strong man. Trump tough. They are tired of a wussy president who won't defend America and who won't take back our border. That's a key theme, Trump tough. Think about that. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with John Bolton in just a few minutes. Security Advisor, National Security Advisor John Bolton will be here. We'll talk more about this and what Joe Biden is afraid to do in the Middle East. It's just pathetic. He's afraid to do anything. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk about the uh, war in the Middle East. Bring in my great friend, Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. uh, National Security Advisor, former U.N. Ambassador, now Chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom, and he's the author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, uh, Merry Christmas, John. Thanks for coming back on. Glad to be with you. Yeah, you're the best. So, John, I talk about a bunch of things, um, but here's a headline. <clears throat> Iranian spy ship helps Houthis direct attacks on Red Sea vessels, okay? They're the ones giving the Houthis the uh, intel to go after these ships in the Red Sea, which is causing chaos and shipping, and Joe Biden won't do anything about it, John. That's the general theme. So this is just one more one more piece of evidence. What is wrong with them? Well, it's a, it's a pretty sad day when the United States is not able to deter even the Houthis in Yemen, who, who wouldn't have two rocks to rub together against naval assets in the Red Sea if it weren't for Iran. In, in fact, that Iranian naval vessel has been there for quite some time. It's got its own purposes dealing with with other shipments through the Red Sea. But I really think that until you make the Houthis pay a price for trying to shut the Red Sea and the the Suez Canal, uh, on the one hand, and the uh, Shia militia in Iraq, also armed, trained, and equipped and financed by Iran, who are attacking American military and civilian uh, personnel in Iraq, until you make them pay for it, they're never going to stop. And I think ultimately, in, in the not very far future, uh, that's got to include making Iran pay directly. 
just making their surrogates feel pain is the right thing to do to reestablish deterrence. But but let's you know focus on what the real problem is here, and, and that's the mullahs in Tehran. I want to come back to that because that's a key point. Uh, there's about 2,000 Houthis, is that right? Cash Patel was on the TV show telling me there's about 2,000 Houthis. It's about yeah, one tenth. Look, it's a rebel. It's a rebel movement. There's been a civil war in Yemen for 30 years, and uh, and and the, the Houthi have been picked by Iran as their proxies because the the Iranians want to establish a strategic position in the backyard, in effect, of Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And and by the way, being located where they are. Uh, at the ent- southern entrance to the Red Sea, they're in an incredibly important strategic position. So this is a dangerous operation. Uh, really, it's it's a it's a it's the it's the iron fist of the Iranians in that part of the world. So why don't we take out some Houthis? Well, that's what we should be doing, and frankly, we should have done it before, and and we could have done it before. But but part of the administ- part of the Biden administration's problem here is that they constantly live in fear. Uh, of what they call a wider conflict in the region, by which they mean having to deal with Iran. This is the direct analog to their fear in Ukraine of the Russians creating a larger war in Europe. With with what hidden assets, I don't know. But but we are the country being deterred in the Middle East by Iran, in Ukraine by Russia. We're, we're not deterring the others, and it's very very straightforward. What's wrong with this picture? So Joe Biden's the appeaser-in-chief. That's what it sounds to me, and that's been true. You can true see it over and over again. Yeah, no, listen, we ha- we haven't talked about China, but I think it's there in, in uh, an even more visible form. And and frankly, right at this point, the Chinese see what's happening. We're weak in Ukraine. We're weak in the Middle East. If they're not saying to themselves in Beijing, how can we take advantage of the Biden administration before it leaves office? I'd be very surprised. So uh, apparently, according to news reports. She told Biden in San Francisco that he was going to take Taiwan. He would like to take it in a peaceful way, but he's going to take Taiwan now. I don't know what your intel sources are. Did he really say that? But that proves your point. Look, I I think he's very serious about it. You know, sometimes you ought to listen to your adversaries when they tell you what they're going (laughs) to do. You know, occasionally they mean it. Uh, The Chinese know, and the timing of that uh, remark to Biden was not accidental. There's a key presidential election in Taiwan in January. Uh, So it's it's right up upon us uh, to determine whether they'll get a government that's going to insist on uh, keeping free people ruling in Taiwan or or one that's going to lean toward Beijing. This is part of the intimidation that's consistent with they're putting naval ships and and, uh, fighter planes over in in Taiwanese uh, territorial waters and airspace all part of trying to intimidate the people of Taiwan. I think it will backfire, but as from what it reveals of what China's real intentions are, it couldn't be clearer. I mean, what kind of position are we in to stop that, to prevent that? Well, I don't think we're ready yet. I, th- I think this is another problem of failure of deterrence. It's not simply a Biden administration problem. It goes back a long way. Uh, we've taken some steps to correct it. Uh, we, we need to do a lot more. And it's, it's one reason why I think this question of America's place in the world and how we protect our interests and, and the way of life we have here at home is, is so very important. I mean, under under Biden, this has been a, uh, a, a basically a retreat on uh, one area after another. And uh, I, I think our friends and allies around the world are getting very nervous. So let me come back <clears throat> to the Middle East and to Iran. 
I don't know if the $10 billion has been transferred for the electricity payments or not. I think the $6 billion was frozen. But the fact that the Bidens actually would prefer to get that money over to Iran, money, of course, is fungible for other nefarious purposes. I mean, what does that tell you? What, do you, what is their thinking? You've got this guy, Jake Sullivan. You've got Anthony Blinken, John. Uh, to me, it's extraordinary. We're, the notion that we're giving money or we would give money or we want to give money to our enemy. How is this possible? Well, it goes to the to one of the Biden administration's biggest mistakes, which is this uh, mythical belief. It was true throughout the Obama administration that if you could just convince the Ayatollahs in Tehran uh, that we weren't out to destroy them, suddenly peace and light would break out and everything would be fine in the Middle East. That's completely wrong. But to this day, the administration has not given up trying to get back into the failed 2015. Uh, nuclear deal, as you well know, we withdrew from in 2018, uh, and and they have reduced enforcement of the economic sanctions against uh, Tehran that were put back into place after we withdrew in 2018. So Iran is now selling oil at levels equivalent to what they were selling before the sanctions were reimposed, uh, primarily to China. They've grown closer both to Beijing and to Moscow. They're selling the Russians drones to use in the war against the Ukrainians. I think really Iran is becoming part of the of the new uh, uh, Russian-Chinese axis, uh, and they're demonstrating in many ways, and still the Biden administration doesn't get it. Yeah, so what, what would you do? You were the toughest guy in the Trump administration on Iran, and I think uh, – you know, your statements prove to be correct now because the worst the worst of this is getting worse. So why why don't the Bidens, why wouldn't any administration not only want to hit the Houthis, but isn't it time, I mean, Jack Keane says this, John, uh, we have to hit some Iranian targets too. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of like Soleimani to the third power or some such. Yeah, look, uh, the, the, to, uh, to the, the government in Tehran, the Houthi rebels, the Shia militia in Iraq are expendable. Uh, uh, we, we may impose costs on them, although we have imposed precious few in the past three months after the Hamas attack on Israel. Until the Ayatollahs feel pain in Iran, we are not going to reestablish deterrence. But, but these, these attacks in the Red Sea and in Iraq and Syria are all linked to supporting Hamas, uh, in its continuing battle with Israel, and it started back on October the seventh. It's this is this is directed and coordinated by Iran. We don't know what their full strategy is, but the outlines are clear enough. And one thing we could do to impose costs on all of them is to allow Israel to do what it says it needs to do, mm. which is eliminate Hamas's capability uh, militarily and politically, and not succumb to the pressure from the fashionable left in. Uh, Europe and, and uh, this country to, to try and stop what's going on. The Israelis need to be able to finish the job. Uh, <clears throat> we're talking to uh, Ambassador John Bolton, uh, former U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor and former U.N. Ambassador. John's book is the, the, the Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. He's now chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. John, I'd like to talk some more about Russia and the Ukraine and I'd like to talk some more about Israel. You've got, another, you've got time for another segment. Uh, please sure hang do. on. All right, you're terrific stuff. Um, 
it's so wonderful to have you on the radio. You're like a regular on this show. It's great stuff. And Merry Christmas, Glad folks. I'm, I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back to talk some more with uh, the great John Bolton. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Ambassador John Bolton, former uh, National Security Advisor during the Trump administration, former U.N. Ambassador, Chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. And John's book is entitled The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Uh, John, there's a story playing about... uh, taken Russian assets, the Western banks, United States, uh, Germany, a few others, uh, may be holding $300 billion in Russian assets, which they confiscated or froze from the Russian Central Bank, and that they would use that money. Uh, I guess David Cameron, back as the foreign minister in London, has uh, been pressing the U.S., Zelensky talks, uh, talked about this when he was here. Uh, anyway, that they would use that money to finance Ukraine. So that's one way of doing it. Of course, Putin's going ballistic over the mere thought of this. What do you think of that? Is that, was, would that be something that, uh, would work? Would that be something that you would advocate? Well, I think there's, there's a, a lot of merit to it, but I think we've got to be careful about it in this sense. A lot of other countries around the world see this freezing of assets and worries about what it may mean for them. I think the thing to do with this money is continue to hold it frozen. But when the time comes, and we're obviously not there yet, but when the time comes and the hostilities are over in Ukraine, and hopefully the Russians have been pushed out, the reconstruction costs in Ukraine are going to be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we say to the Russians, uh, part of any truce with you of, of, of any suspension of hostilities is going to be your agreement to these assets being used for Ukrainian reconstruction. I think that's a pretty powerful leverage tool. I'm not in any way trying to exonerate the Russians. They were the, the clearly the unprovoked aggressors here. But I think using these assets the right way will do uh, powerful things for Ukraine, but not endanger our position and, and worry people about our use of the dollar in other cases. You know, you were talking earlier about the China threat and so forth. You think about it, John. China is financing two wars against the United States, one in Ukraine and uh, one in the Middle East, purchasing uh, imports of both Russian oil and Iranian oil. I mean, China's becoming a paymaster. Now, I never see a discussion of this. Uh, but that's clearly what's happening. You know, you mentioned how Iran has built up its sales. They're running about three and a half million barrels a day sales uh, because the sanctions have been lifted or relaxed. But the same is true. China buying Russian oil, um, I'm sure it's at a discount. But, I mean, I don't know why the Bidens – why didn't Joe Biden complain about that when he met with Xi in San Francisco? I mean, we should be raising holy hell. China is becoming the paymaster uh, in Russia and uh, and uh, Iran. Well, I think you're exactly right. And this this is why this new Russian-Chinese alliance is the reverse of what we knew in the Cold War days. This time, China is clearly the dominant partner and Russia is the subordinate partner. But here again, I think the Biden administration is, is so fearful of 
uh, what it thinks China could do to it, that it's unwilling to take steps along the lines you mentioned or to deal with, as you well know, the, the long-standing, continuing threat of Chinese uh, pirating of our intellectual property. Yes. I yes. think I think I think the Biden administration uh, is consumed with the idea it needs a climate change agreement with China, and mm. it doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize it. It's been true from the from day one when John Kerry was made the special envoy. And you know, just so everybody knows, I'm sure the Chinese would be happy to agree to a climate change agreement. They just don't intend to comply with any <laughs> obligations they undertake. The whole thing. Uh, is chasing a mirage. But that that's a major part of why the administration won't stand up to China. And again, this is something I think people around the world can see. It's another aspect of the administration's general weakness. John, is the, is the Ukraine war in a stalemate position, or how do you read that? Well, I think it is at the moment. There are press reports that Putin is uh, conducting some uh, diplomacy to try and get the negotiations started. Frankly, that wouldn't surprise me. If I were in Putin's shoes, I'd say, look, uh, this war has gone on long enough. Let's have a ceasefire and start negotiation. And the line of control in the ceasefire then becomes his new border with Ukraine. I think the administration has mishandled the aid that we've given. It was never deployed in a strategic fashion. And I think now we're seeing the consequences. So the course of the next year, I think, is going to be very difficult. Nobody should underestimate the the, uh, the sentiment within the Democratic Party. We've seen the left wing emerge in uh, in the case of the pro-Palestinian position many have taken in Israel's war against Hamas. There are plenty on the left wing of the Democratic Party very uneasy about Biden's military assistance to Ukraine. They they want to, they want Biden to advocate negotiations, and I think in the year. It could happen. I'm very worried uh, about what's going to happen on Ukraine. I mean, it just looks like Biden. It's always looked like Biden is more fearful of Russia than Russia is of him. Biden is more fearful of Iran than Iran is of him. Biden looks so weak on the international stage. Well, he does, and, and, and it's a case where instead of using our... Uh, power and and, uh, and and assets to deter others from engaging in behavior we find but we are deterred by them and I think his biggest failure ha- has been effectively uh, to accept a near freezing of the defense budget you know nominal increases but given inflation it's it's mm. barely keeping up and in the circumstances we face legislatively we're falling behind we we need a significant increase in the defense budget now you know we also need a significant decrease in our budget deficit. So there's there's a lot of domestic programs that are that are ineffective and wasteful to be gotten rid of. But we need a stronger U.S. defense capability. We face multiple threats around the world. And you know, as, as Donald Rumsfeld used to say, it's not American strength that's provocative. It's weak provocative, and that, that's what we see all too much of today. John, did you get along? You know, I, I love Mr. Rumsfeld. He, he was always great to me. Did you get along w- with Rumsfeld? Uh, well, I think I did. He uh, he was never uh, uh, hesitant to give me advice on how to negotiate with the Russians and others. <laughs> but uh, but but he he knew his stuff, and uh, and, and yeah. it's, uh, it's sad he's gone. Yeah, I thought he was a great man. <laughs> he was really good to me. Just as a sidebar, you mentioned. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, John, let's talk about Israel. Are the Bidens going to let Israel do the job Israel needs to do? I mean, you read stuff, you hear stuff. 
They're trying to micromanage the war. They want some more humanitarian aid, which means more Gaza aid. They're telling Israel to um, to pull in their horns. What's going to happen there? Well, I'm I'm worried that uh, that Biden is reacting now more and more to the to the opposition he sees within his own party, and and amazing statistics and polls that show support for Israel among. Americans under 30 is at something like the 25 percent level, mm. whereas um, among mm. Americans older than 50, it's 70, 80, 90 percent. And uh, I, I'm just stunned by that. I'm sure uh, the Democrats are even more stunned by it. I don't think backseat driving of the kind that the Biden administration is doing is, is any help to anybody. Look, mm. nobody's perfect in war, but I believe the Israelis are, are following the same doctrine, the same principles we are in a very difficult environment. If, if people make mistakes, they can prosecute them. It doesn't undercut uh, the legitimacy of, of the effort. This is part of Israel's right of self-defense, which, which includes eliminating the threat that uh, caused uh, October the 7th. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult time for Israel. But I think uh, the White House is making a big mistake, notwithstanding the political trouble Prime Minister Netanyahu is in, making a big mistake if they don't see how strongly the Israelis feel about this and and doing what this coalition cabinet in Israel says is their uh, combined objective, eliminating the Hamas threat. And what is this, um, the business about a two-state solution and letting the PLA run uh, both the West Bank and Gaza, what's your take on that? Because... I mean, the, the Bidens keep talking about that. It, among other things, John, it occurs to me that, okay, fine, we can talk about how this is going to parse out later. Let's uh, crush and annihilate Hamas first. But wh- wh- what is so great about a two-state solution? Well, I, look, I thought for some time the two-state solution was dead, and if anybody thought it was still kicking after October the 7th, mm. uh, they're, they're, they're even more wrong now. Uh, the Palestinian Authority is corrupt, dysfunctional, and frankly just turns a blind eye to terrorism. There's, there's no way you can responsibly say the answer after Hamas is eliminated is to put the Palestinian Authority in charge. In fact, in a way, what Biden is saying, the, the Israeli military should continue to fight and die in Gaza to put the Palestinian Authority in charge. Just play that out in Israel. Or, or much of the population here in this country that supports Israel, that's a non-starter. I think, I think people have got to look at much bigger solutions. The two-state solution has failed. We need to move on to something else. All right. John Bolton, you're the best of the best. Uh, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. I hope you have a Happy New Year. Thanks for helping me on this show, as you have. Folks, Ambassador John Bolton, people should listen to his advice. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk some politics with Joe Concha and Mark Simone. What about Iowa? What about Nikki Haley in New Hampshire? What about everything? I'm Cudlow. Christmas weekend. Our Lord Jesus' birth. Stay with us. Straight ahead. Much more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We go to Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. His latest book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. 
The book before that was about the Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow, William James Bryan. What was the name of that book? Trial of the Century, Larry. Right. Thanks for remembering. Yeah, No, no, it was a good read. Very good read. Happy, uh, first of all, Merry Christmas. Happy Thank New you. Year, you too. Greg, Jared. Uh, Greg um, no fast track in the Supreme Court. No fast track in the Supreme Court. But the D.C. Court of Appeals, that's the next uh, step. Is that a liberal court? Is that just chock full of lefties? Or what's the story here? Well, it's certainly dominated by, uh, you know, judges that were appointed by Democrat presidents. Uh, there are a total of 11 active members, seven of which are Democrats. Uh, so it's not a friendly venue for, you know, Donald Trump. And, you know, you may have the same result as the trial court who said no immunity. Uh, Trump then has a choice of uh, having an en banc full court hear the case. You know, you'd have to schedule briefs, then oral arguments have to be heard, uh, and then the decision rendered, that takes time. And if Trump loses there, he can go to the U.S. Supreme Court and if they decide to take the case, the clock begins running all over again. So this likely delays the scheduled March trial. You think it'll delay, get all this stuff after the election or until the election? I mean, to me, the election should be the ultimate arbiter. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think that many of these prosecutions have the unmistakable stench of politically driven cases uh you know joe biden's doj waited two and a half years before bringing the charges uh in florida and in washington dc uh realizing that the ensuing trials could be perfectly timed in the middle of a presidential campaign so you know i some of these uh may take place uh after the presidential election some could happen before Greg, I don't know if you saw this. Um, came out Thursday night. Uh, former Attorney General Ed Meese, who I might add is a dear friend of mine, uh, he's arguing. Let's see, he's got uh, law professors Steve Calabrese and Gary Lawson that um, Jack Smith, the appointment of Jack Smith, uh, is unconstitutional because he's holding he's holding a position that was never created. Uh, by Congress, and I'll quote, that appointment was unlawful, as are all the legal actions that have flowed from it, including Citizen Smith's current attempt to obtain a ruling from this court. I mean, it's interesting. Is is Jack Smith, is, is that all unconstitutional? Does Ed Mace, who's a smart guy, Calabrese is a smart guy, you probably know these guys, um, do they have a point? Uh, I agree with you. I know them. Uh, they're quite intelligent, uh, and they know the law. And it's a valid, legal, viable argument that they're making here that, you know, if you pluck a private citizen for this kind of job, it violates the Appointments Clause, which requires uh, Congress. Now, mm -hmm. that does conflict with federal regulations, which... Uh, appear to give the attorney general the right to pick someone outside of government um, to act as special counsel. Um, so, you know, it's an unresolved issue, but, you know, it's a pretty darn good argument, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting argument. 
The other thing that's cooking around Greg Jarrett is the banning Trump from uh, the ballot. Now, Colorado's state Supreme Court, all Democrats, uh, they passed this, although they did stay it. Now you've got all these Democratic politicians saying, yeah, yeah, let's keep Trump off the ballot. Trump's won a lot of these, but they're going to try to use other states to keep him off the ballot in those states. I mean, this is like a circus. But what does all this mean? Well, you know, it was a laughable decision, uh, four to three, by the partisan Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, I suspect it will be pretty quickly overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court because the justices there in Colorado got it wrong. The insurrection clause does not apply to the facts in this particular case. Uh, It was intended for Confederates who literally took up arms against the government. Trump is not even accused of insurrection under the federal statute. If the evidence supported it, uh, obviously Jack Smith would have charged it. But, you know, the facts don't support it. So to remove Trump from a presidential ballot for an offense that he hasn't been tried or convicted of blatantly violates his right to due process guaranteed by that very amendment that the Democrats cite, the 14th Amendment. Uh, You know, if Joe Biden were smart, I think, uh, Larry, he would denounce this ruling. But his refusal to do that makes him look like he's so desperate to hang on to power, he's willing to win by hook or by crook, which means banishing his opponent from the ballot. Well, so he's always saying... You know, you gotta defeat you gotta defeat Donald Trump, you've gotta defeat MAGA in order to save democracy. Right? So in order to save democracy, let's keep my opponent off of the ballot. Yeah, I, I, don't, under, I don't understand the logic there, even by Joe Biden's standards. Yeah, well Biden is tacitly endorsing something that looks and smells like it's anti democratic. Uh, and it's the equivalent, in truth, of election rigging. Uh, rigging. And, and it's a slippery slope, too, because, you know, Larry, Republicans are drafting bills to remove Joe Biden from the ballot in various states. So, you know, this is the stuff of dictators and tyrants. They ban their opponents from running by expunging their names. Uh, Republicans should not go down that road, although Democrats are certainly setting the precedent for it and inviting it. Well, viva Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Viva Russia. All right. President for life. Viva China. I mean, that's just I mean, here's Biden talking about democracy and all of his people are trying to keep Trump either in jail or off the ballot or both. I mean, this. The stupidity of that cannot help Biden. That's all I'm thinking. People look at this and go, huh, really? What's he talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, Americans are pretty smart. I think they see this for what it is uh, in terms of all of the criminal indictments. Um, These are political persecutions under the guise of prosecution. Um, And this uh, move in Colorado and other states I mean, that's uh, anti-democratic under the guise of, oh, we're protecting democracy. No, you're not. Uh, Don't deprive voters of their right under the Constitution to make the decision as to who should be president. 
Last one, Greg Jarrett. Uh, impeachment of Joe Biden for all of the money laundering and the influence peddling and so forth and so on. Give us some quick uh, pearls of wisdom. When the Congress comes back, does the drumbeat continue? I think the drumbeat for uh, information and evidence will continue. Uh, there is more than enough, I think, uh, evidence uh, already for impeachable offenses, but I think it's unwise uh, to bring formal impeachment, a vote on impeachment, and an impeachment trial during an election year. Once again, you're doing what Democrats are doing, and that is depriving the voter of the decision as to who should make president. But the investigation is useful. The inquiry is oh, yeah. useful, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So continue to accumulate the damning, incriminating evidence and present it to the American people. Let them decide. Don't throw it into the Senate for an impeachment trial to try to boot uh, you know, Biden from office. Let Americans decide. They're smart enough, educated enough. They generally tend to make good decisions. Ten percent for the big guy, Greg. Ten percent for the big guy. Save ten percent. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'd love to, to make ten percent, uh, you know, especially the <laughs> tens of millions of dollars that the Bidens hauled in with their prodigious influence peddling schemes. Uh, you know, it is probably the biggest bribery scandal in American political history, just based on the profits and self-enrichment alone. Yeah, well, win or lose, Joe Biden's going to pardon his son. You get ready. Well, I think so. I I absolutely agree with you. And if he bows out, that's more of an incentive to pardon his son. (laughs) Uh, You know, he sees those poll numbers. I mean, he has historic lows. He's heading for defeat. Uh, so he may toss in the towel and say, oh, I'm doing it for the good of my family, then pardon his son. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. The name of the book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Merry Christmas, Greg. Talk soon. Larry Kudlow. Now back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're having a little trouble finding Roger Stone, but I got a couple things to say. You know, one thing I want to hit on before we lose it, and that is this uh, whole business about Harvard hates America and the um, Harvard's anti-Semitism and um, and this uh, president uh, Claudine Gray. Is that her name, Claudine Gray? I think that's her name. Um, and plagiarism. Okay, I talked to Alan Dershowitz. Professor Emeritus, Harvard Law School. Talked to him on the TV show this past week. He was infuriated. And Bershowitz, by the way, just you know, just to remind, uh, as he wrote, reminds me, Mr. Dershowitz, uh, Professor Dershowitz, uh, did not vote for Donald Trump in 16, did not vote for Donald Trump in 20, and uh, I don't think he's going to vote for him in 24. But in any event, um, this is about... Uh, not only her failure, Claudine Gray, the president of Harvard, not only her failure to um, to stop anti-Semitism at Harvard and to respond properly uh, under questioning in Congress, uh, Elise Stefanik's questioning, 
but also the repeated charges now of plagiarism. And usually, if you're accused of plagiarism and have proven that you plagiarized somebody else's work without credit and so forth, whether you're a student or a professor, much less a president of a university, you get booted out, booted out. Now, they came up with a few isolated examples. I guess I call them isolated at the beginning. Harvard did an investigation uh, starting earlier this fall, and then all of a sudden a slew of new charges came up. I mean, uh, the Boston Globe, which is a liberal newspaper, uh, and other media's uh, organs have, I think they were, the, the head count was up to 40 examples of plagiarism. One of those who was plagiarized, uh, former Vanderbilt professor Carol Swain, uh, down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and she wrote a tough op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. And it's incredible to me that uh, Claudine Gray is still the president of Harvard. They've done nothing. And it turns out from the New York Post's reporting that Harvard uh, tried to cover this whole story up, hired a bunch of tough lawyers. So the Post uh, nailed it. And the story continues to go on. And again, Dershowitz argues strenuously that the reason that Claudine Gray is still president of Harvard University is simply because uh, of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, DEI. Gay, Claudine Gay, I'm sorry, terrible. I can't keep track of Harvard. And this is a bad story, and it's an unresolved story as we move towards the end of the year. Maybe the Harvard's think that the story is going to go away or Christmas and New Year, we're going to forget about it. But Claudine Gay is not going to be forgotten. Her plagiarism is not going to be forgotten. And it's kind of another example of um, a sort of dual, two-tiered justice system. She's not there because of her merit. She's there because she passed the test of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Woke left-wing social policies, affirmative action. And that's too bad. It's a huge black mark on Harvard. And then comes the related issue, uh, which I don't know, we talked about this on last week's show with Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. But I want to raise it again. These elite universities are getting away with murder because of their social policies and their woke policies and their affirmative action and DEI policies, they don't pay any taxes. Well, let's say total tax rate is 1.4%. All right, Median tax rate in the United States is about 25%. <clears throat> the top earners pay 37%. We pay taxes on capital gains. Harvard doesn't. Ordinary people pay taxes on dividends and interest. Harvard doesn't. This is not fair. If Harvard is going to pursue left-wing social policies, they ought to be taxed. And they get huge amounts of federal spending and grants. Six, seven, eight hundred million dollars a year to Harvard. I have a problem with that. I mean, there's a twofold problem. So let's correct this. Number one, Let's stop the spending, just on general grounds. We spend too much. 
Spending is inflationary. The Bidens have been huge spenders. That was one of the principal causes of the inflation. The Fed monetized the spending. The Fed has gotten tough in the last year. The inflation rates come down, although prices are still way above where they were three years ago. But let's cut the spending to all these universities. They have a lot of money. Harvard has $50 billion some odd. All right, so there's a point. Second, um, on the tax issue. How about taxing these rich endowments? All right, again, Harvard has $50 billion. I think Harvard, somebody calculated, Harvard, Penn, and MIT had $98 billion among them. All right, let them pay a fair tax rate, and then let's use those revenues to reduce tax rates on the rest of the country. All right, how about for, you know, class people? Lower the blue-collar tax rate, which is, as I said, averaging 20 25%, maybe get that down to 15%. How about that? Maybe go to a flat tax rate system at 15 to 20%. How about that? The point I'm making is um, the elites should be treated like the rest of us with respect to taxing. Point number two, the elites shouldn't get these enormous federal spending grants and sums. They don't need it. They have plenty of resources on their own, and they could save the rest of the country a lot of money. Maybe we could cut the budget deficit, for heaven's sakes. Maybe we could issue less debt, for heaven's sakes. And um, number three, we can't have a two-tiered justice system. Plagiarizing is a very bad thing. I thought that academia agreed on that. Why is suddenly Claudine Gay and Harvard the exception? Well, I think people do know why. But I think that's a big problem. And I think it's going to have to be solved. I think this issue is not going to go away. I haven't heard Joe Biden on this. He's afraid to speak out on it. His administration is just chock full of people. What did I see today? I think I saw this morning... I think it was Breitbart, up on Breitbart, um, maybe I'm wrong, it was someplace else, that uh, former President Barack Obama weighed in, and uh, he went to Harvard Law School, and he's lobbying the Harvard Corporation, which is run by the left-winger Penny Pritzker. She was Commerce Secretary for a bit during the Obama years. Anyway, Mr. Obama apparently was lobbying Harvard to leave Claudine Gay alone. Just leave her where she is. Not, uh, don't ask for anything on anti-Semitism. Don't ask for any uh, charges uh, on, um, on plagiarism. Just leave her where she is. That's not good. That's not good. Mr. Obama should butt up. Somebody should stand up and say enough is enough. Frankly, of the two issues here, anti-Semitism on college campuses and plagiarism, I'm going to vote for anti-Semitism as the worst of the two. 
That has just got to be stopped. That has just got to be stopped. And I'm waiting for an Ivy League president to come up and just say what's on everybody's mind. Anti-Semitism must be stopped. But the plagiarism charge with Claudine Gay, and I apologize for saying Gray, that's got to be stopped as well. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. It's still Merry Christmas. We're still of good cheer, but there are wrongs in this country that need to be righted. We'll be back and do some stock market work on the other side of the break. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Not that Andrew with Andrew Giuliani. In Trump's case and other citizens who brought challenges to the court regarding the 2020 election, anytime the court actually allows a case to move forward, he or they have won 74% of the election cases. A stat that most of the legacy media will never, ever tell you. In this case specifically, the New York Court of Appeals ruled that Assemblyman Chris Tagg, State Senator Borello, and Congressman Mike Lawler, among others, did not have the standing, even though they are New York citizens who may be affected by this and certainly represent New Yorkers who will be affected by the implementation of this rule. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. This is New York's talk leader, the crown jewel of talk radio. WABC New York and 1071 WLIR Hampton Bays. 77 WABC News starts now. 39 degrees broke. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We go to Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. His latest book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. The book before that was about the Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow, William James Bryan. What was the name of that book? Trial of the Century, Larry. Yeah. Thanks for remembering. Yeah, No, no, it was a good read. Very good read. Happy, uh, first of all, Merry Christmas. Happy Thank New you. Year, you too. Greg Jarrett. Uh, Greg, um, no fast track in the Supreme Court. No fast track in the Supreme Court. But the D.C. Court of Appeals, that's the next uh, step. Is that a liberal court? Is that just chock full of lefties? Or what's the story here? Well, it's certainly dominated by, uh, you know, judges that were appointed by Democrat presidents. Uh, there are a total of 11 active members, seven of which are Democrats. Uh, so it's not a friendly venue for, you know, Donald Trump. And, you know, you may have the same result as the trial court who said no immunity. Uh, Trump then has a choice of uh, having an en banc full court hear the case. You know, you'd have to schedule briefs, then oral arguments have to be heard, uh, and then the decision rendered, that takes time. And if Trump loses there, he can go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they decide to take the case, the clock begins running all over again. So this likely delays the scheduled March trial. 
you think it'll delay, get all this stuff after the election or until the election? I mean, to me, the election should be the ultimate arbiter. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think that many of these prosecutions have the unmistakable stench of politically driven cases. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's DOJ waited two and a half years before bringing the charges uh, in Florida and in Washington, D.C., uh, realizing that the ensuing trials could be perfectly timed in the middle of a presidential campaign. So, you know, some of these uh, may take place uh, after the presidential election. Some could happen before. Greg, I don't know if you saw this. um, came out Thursday night. uh, Former Attorney General Ed Meese, who I might add is a dear friend of mine, uh, he's arguing, let's see, he's got uh, law professors Steve Calabrese and Gary Lawson that... um, Jack Smith, the appointment of Jack Smith uh, is unconstitutional because he's holding, he's holding a position that was never created uh, by Congress. And I'll quote, that appointment was unlawful, as are all the legal actions that have flowed from it, including Citizen Smith's current attempt to obtain a ruling from this court. I mean, it's interesting is is Jackson is is that all unconstitutional? Does Ed Mace, who's a smart guy, Calabrese is a smart guy? You probably know these guys. Um, do they have a point? Uh, I agree with you. I know them. Uh, they're quite intelligent, uh, and they know the law. And it's a valid, legal, viable argument that they're making here. That you know, if you pluck a private citizen. For this kind of job, it violates the Appointments Clause, which requires uh, Congress. Now, mm. that does conflict with federal regulations, which uh, appear to give the Attorney General the right to pick someone outside of government um, to act as special counsel. Um, so, you know, it's an unresolved issue, but, you know, it's a pretty darn good argument, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting argument. The other thing that's cooking around, Greg Jarrett, is the banning Trump from uh, the ballot. Now, Colorado's state Supreme Court, all Democrats, uh, they passed this, although they did stay it. Now you've got all these Democratic politicians saying, yeah, yeah, let's keep Trump off the ballot. Trump's won a lot of these, but they're going to try to use other states to keep him off the ballot in those states. I mean, this is like a circus, but what does all this mean? Well, you know, it was a laughable decision, uh, four to three, by the partisan Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, I suspect it will be pretty quickly overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court because the justices there in Colorado got it wrong. The insurrection clause does not apply to the facts in this particular case. Uh, it was intended for Confederates who literally took up arms against the government. Trump is not even accused of insurrection under the federal statute. If the evidence supported it, uh, obviously Jack Smith would have charged it. But, you know, the facts don't support it. So to remove Trump from a presidential ballot for an offense that he hasn't been tried or convicted of blatantly violates his right to due process guaranteed by that very amendment 
that the Democrats cite the 14th Amendment. Uh, you know, if Joe Biden were smart, I think, uh, Larry, he would denounce this ruling. But his refusal to do that makes him look like he's so desperate to hang on to power, he's willing to win by hook or by crook, which means banishing his opponent from the ballot. Well, so he's always saying, you know, you got to defeat, you got to defeat Donald Trump, you've got to defeat MAGA in order to save democracy, right? So, in order to save democracy, let's keep my opponent off of the ballot. Yeah, I, don't I, I don't understand the logic there, even by Joe Biden's standards. Yeah, well, Biden is tacitly endorsing something that looks and smells like it's anti-democratic. Uh, and it's the equivalent, in truth, of election rigging. Uh, rigging. And, and it's a slippery slope, too, because, you know, Larry, Republicans are drafting bills to remove Joe Biden from the ballot in various states. So, you know, this is the stuff of dictators and tyrants. They ban their opponents from running by expunging their names. Uh, Republicans should not go down that road, although Democrats are certainly setting the precedent for it and inviting it. Well, viva Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Viva Russia. All right. President for life. Viva China. I mean, that's just I mean, here's Biden talking about democracy and all of his people are trying to keep Trump either in jail or off the ballot or both. I mean, this. The stupidity of that cannot help Biden. That's all I'm thinking. People look at this and go, huh, really? What's he talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, Americans are pretty smart. I think they see this for what it is uh, in terms of all of the criminal indictments. Um, these are political persecutions under the guise of prosecution. Um, and this uh, move in Colorado and other states I mean, that's uh, anti-democratic under the guise of, oh, we're protecting democracy. No, you're not. Uh, Don't deprive voters of their right under the Constitution to make the decision as to who should be president. Last one, Greg Jarrett. Uh, Impeachment of Joe Biden for all of the money laundering and the influence peddling and so forth and so on. Give us some quick uh, pearls of wisdom when the Congress comes back, does the drumbeat continue? I think the drumbeat for uh, information and evidence will continue. Uh, there is more than enough, I think, uh, evidence uh, already for impeachable offenses, but I think it's unwise uh, to bring formal impeachment, a vote on impeachment, and an impeachment trial during an election year. Once again, you're doing what Democrats are doing, and that is depriving the voter of the decision as to who should make president. But, but the investigation is useful. The inquiry is oh, yeah. useful, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So continue to accumulate the damning, incriminating evidence and present it to the American people. Let them decide. Don't throw it into the Senate for an impeachment trial to try to boot, uh, you know, Biden from office. Let Americans decide. They're smart enough, educated enough. They generally tend to make good decisions. 10% for the big guy, Greg. 10% for the big guy. Save 10%. 
Ten yeah, I know. I, I, I'd love to, to make 10%, uh, you know, especially the tens <laughs> of millions of dollars that the Bidens hauled in with their prodigious influence peddling schemes. Uh, you know, it is probably the biggest bribery scandal in American political history, just based on the profits and self-enrichment alone. Yeah, well, win or lose, Joe Biden's going to pardon his son. You get ready. Cudlow well, I think so. I, I absolutely yes. agree with you. And if he bows out, that's more of an incentive to pardon his son. <laughs> uh, you know, he sees those poll numbers. I mean, he has historic lows. He's heading for defeat. Uh, so he may toss in the towel and say, oh, I'm doing it for the good of my family, then pardon his son. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. The name of the book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Merry Christmas, Greg. Talk soon. Larry Kudlow. Now back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're having a little trouble finding Roger Stone, but i got a couple things to say. You know, one thing I want to hit on before we lose it, and that is this uh, whole business about Harvard hates America and the um, Harvard's anti-Semitism, and, um, and this uh, president, uh, Claudine Gray. Is that her name, Claudine Gray? I think that's her name. Um, and plagiarism, okay? I talked to Alan Dershowitz, Professor Emeritus, Harvard Law School. Talked to him on the TV show this past week. He was infuriated. And Dershowitz, by the way, just, you know, just to remind... Uh, as he reminds me, Mr. Dershowitz, uh, Professor Dershowitz, uh, did not vote for Donald Trump in 16, did not vote for Donald Trump in 20, and uh, I don't think he's going to vote for him in 24. But in any event, um, this business about uh, not only her failure, Claudine Gray, the president of Harvard, not only her failure to... Um, to stop anti-Semitism at Harvard and to respond properly uh, under questioning in Congress, uh, Elise Stefanik's questioning, but also the repeated charges now of plagiarism. And usually, if you're accused of plagiarism and have proven that you plagiarized somebody else's work without credit and so forth, whether you're a student or a professor, much less a president of a university, you get booted out, booted out, now, they came up with a few isolated examples. I guess I call them isolated at the beginning. Harvard did an investigation uh, starting earlier this fall. And then all of a sudden, a slew of new charges came up. I mean, uh, the Boston Globe, which is a liberal newspaper, uh, and other media uh, organs have, I think they were, the, the headcount was up to 40 examples of plagiarism. One of those who was plagiarized, uh, former Vanderbilt professor Carol Swain, uh, down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and she wrote a tough op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. And it's incredible to me that uh, Claudine Gray is still the president of Harvard. They've done nothing. And it turns out from the New York Post reporting that Harvard uh, tried to cover this whole story up. Hired a bunch of tough lawyers. So the Post uh, nailed it. 
And the story continues to go on. And again, Dershowitz argues strenuously that the reason that Claudine Gray is still president of Harvard University is simply because uh, of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, DEI. Gay, Claudine Gay, I'm sorry, terrible. I can't keep track of Harvard. And this is a bad story, and it's an unresolved story as we move towards the end of the year. Maybe the Harvards think that the story is going to go away or Christmas and New Year, we're going to forget about it. But Claudine Gay is not going to be forgotten. Her plagiarism is not going to be forgotten. And it's kind of another example of um, a sort of dual, two-tiered justice system. She's not there because of her merit. She's there because she passed the test of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Woke, left-wing social policies, affirmative action. And that's too bad. It's a huge black mark on Harvard. And then comes the related issue, uh, which I don't know, we talked about this on last week's show with Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. But I want to raise it again. These elite universities are getting away with murder because of their social policies and their woke policies and their affirmative action and DEI policies. They don't pay any taxes. Well, let's say total tax rate is 1.4%. All right, Median tax rate in the United States is about 25%. The top earners pay 37%. We pay taxes on capital gains. Harvard doesn't. Ordinary people pay taxes on dividends and interest. Harvard doesn't. This is not fair. If Harvard is going to pursue left-wing social policies, they ought to be taxed. And they get huge amounts of federal spending and grants. Six, seven, eight hundred million dollars a year to Harvard. I have a problem with that. I mean, there's a twofold problem. So let's correct this. Number one, let's stop the spending, just on general grounds. We spend too much money. Spending is inflationary. The Bidens have been huge spenders. That was one of the principal causes of the inflation. The Fed monetized the spending. The Fed has gotten tough in the last year. The inflation rates come down although prices are still way above where they were three years ago. But let's cut the spending to all these universities. They have a lot of money. Harvard has $50 billion some of it. All right, so there's a point. Second, um, on the tax issue, how about taxing these rich endowments? All right, again, Harvard has $50 billion. I think Harvard, somebody calculated Harvard, Penn, and MIT had $98 billion among them, all right? Let them pay a fair tax rate, and then let's use those revenues to reduce tax rates on the rest of the country, all right? How about for, you know, class people? Lower the blue-collar tax rate, which is, as I said, averaging 20 25%, maybe get that down to 15%. How about that? Maybe go to a flat tax rate system. At 15 to 20 percent. How about that? The point I'm making is um, the elites should be treated like the rest of us. 
with respect to taxing. Point number two, the elites shouldn't get these enormous federal spending grants and sums. They don't need it. They have plenty of resources on their own, and they could save the rest of the country a lot of money. Maybe we could cut the budget deficit, for heaven's sakes. Maybe we could issue less debt, for heaven's sakes. And uh, number three, we can't have a two-tiered justice system. Plagiarizing is a very bad thing. I thought that academia agreed on that. Why is suddenly Claudine Gay and Harvard the exception? Well, I think people do know why. But I think that's a big problem. And I think it's going to have to be solved. I think this issue is not going to go away. I haven't heard Joe Biden on this. He's afraid to speak out on it. His administration is just chock full of people. What did I see today? I think I saw this morning... I think it was Breitbart, up on Breitbart, um, maybe I'm wrong, it was someplace else, that uh, former President Barack Obama weighed in, and uh, he went to Harvard Law School, and he's lobbying the Harvard Corporation, which is run by the left-winger Penny Pritzker. She was Commerce Secretary for a bit during the Obama years. Anyway, Mr. Obama apparently was lobbying Harvard to leave Claudine Gay alone. Just leave her where she is. Not, uh, don't ask for anything on anti-Semitism. Don't ask for any uh, charges uh, on, um, on plagiarism. Just leave her where she is. That's not good. That's not good. Mr. Obama should butt up. Somebody should stand up and say enough is enough. Frankly, of the two issues here, anti-Semitism on college campuses and plagiarism, I'm going to vote for anti-Semitism as the worst of the two. That has just got to be stopped. That has just got to be stopped. And I'm waiting for an Ivy League president to come up and just say what's on everybody's mind. Anti-Semitism must be stopped. But the plagiarism charge with Claudine Gay, and I apologize for saying Gray, that's got to be stopped as well. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. It's still Merry Christmas. We're still of good cheer. But there are wrongs in this country that need to be righted. We'll be back and do some stock market work on the other side of the break. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Christmas weekend. Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas to the stock market. Holy cow, what a great present. Stocks just keep getting the new highs or close to new highs, and the Kudlow Trust is doing very well, and um, it's all good. 
It's all good. Can it last? I don't know. Dow is up 81 this past week. NASDAQ 179, S&P 535. Just looking at these numbers before we get to our distinguished guests, year-to-date... Here to date, the Dow's up 13%, the NAS is up 43%, the S&P 500 is up 24%. Interesting, the Dow Jones Total Market Index, that's getting, puts everything in there, 24% increase this year. You go down the list and everybody's happy. The only one's not happy is China. China's off 17.4%. That's the Hang Seng Index. Anyway, tough darts, China. Let's talk to our friend Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors and uh, Head of Investment Solutions, and Kenny Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. So, Stephanie Link... It's all good. I don't know. It's all good. What's the wisdom? Merry Christmas, first of all. My, nothing but love to you and Kenny. Interest rates down, stocks up. I'm going to say profits surprising on the upside, the profits of the mother's milk of stocks. Um, what's driving stocks to these new records, Stephanie Link? Well, and Merry Christmas to you, Larry. I'm so thrilled to be on um, with Kenny as well. Well, I think what's going on is that the Fed has engineered a soft landing, uh, which is everybody was very skeptical. A year ago at this time, everybody was calling for gloom and doom for 2023. They were talking about recession by now in 2023, and that actually did not happen. And, in fact, we saw acceleration in growth throughout the year, we started the year at 2% GDPs in the first quarter, 2.1 in the second, 4.9 in the third, which just wowed everybody. And right now, the Atlanta Fed tracker for 4Q is at 2.6%. Um, and I think a lot of it is because you're seeing inflation come down and growth remaining stable. And so people feel good about 2024 and the earnings outlook, to your point, Stocks follow profits on the way up and on the way down, and right now the numbers are actually going higher, and there's more confidence to be had. Um, we're nowhere, we're not close yet to where the Fed wants to be on inflation, but we're really we're getting there. You know, you've gone from a CPI of 9.1 down to 2.8 percent on a six-month annualized basis. Core yesterday, the core PCE. The best since March of 21. Um, and again, the, the, the growth side of the equation, when you look at retail sales, you look at the housing data that we got last week, look at the consumer hanging in, you know, kind of looks pretty good right now. Wow. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's Merry all I can Christmas. Say. Ken, Ken Pocari, what, uh, what, what do you what do you make of all that? I agree with everything Stephanie says because it certainly feels like a Merry Christmas. It feels like we're all going in the right direction, and so everyone should be quite happy with that. Where I'm confused and where this goes off the off the rails for me is that all that good news that Stephanie just talked about and, you know, you and I could talk about uh, does not, to me, suggest that there's any reason that the Fed then needs to stimulate the economy by cutting rates. Now, now I think parts of the market are assuming five and six times in 2024, which seems to me to be completely uh, illogical compared to the story that Stephanie just held. 
because everything's going along fine. The economy's great. Unemployment is low. Labor market is strong. Inflation's coming down. So why do – and, the tre- by the way, Treasury yields are also coming down and have eased tremendously. Mortgages have gone from 8% to nearly 7%. That's a 16% decline, right, in the cost of money. So, so, so what's the push to get the Fed to cut rates five or six or seven times in 2024? Makes no sense to me. Well, they got to juice the economy for Biden. Oops, did I say that? Oh, no. I said that. How did that get out? I don't know. I don't know. That's a terrible thought. Uh, the Fed is completely independent of political. But you got a 390, uh, 10. You know, I mean, rates are, let's say the 10 years come down over 100 basis points. So, Steph, that'll do it right there. I mean, boom, right? The present value of future earnings goes up as interest rates go down, as I recall. Yes, sir. So we went from, in the last month, we went from expectations of being like the Fed is going to either maybe 25 basis points of hiking or just staying higher for longer to now all of a sudden what Kenny just mentioned, all sorts of cuts. Um, Obviously, the Fed, they they went to 75 basis points in cuts in in the dot plots. But you also had investment grade spreads are now 60 basis points tighter. You had a 20% drop in crude. You mentioned rates. So that's a stimulating uh, housing. And as I said, every single data point last week in housing was pretty encouraging. Single family permits up 18%. Single family starts up six, uh, up 18%. Um, so really a good part of the the problems that we've seen over the last year, year and a half in housing is starting to reverse itself because of what you just mentioned on, on lower interest rates. So, and oh, by the way, Larry, guess what? We have $6 trillion in money markets on the sidelines. So fine, beginning of the year when rates, in middle of the year when rates were really much higher, you did see cash sorting. You saw money come out of all sorts of instruments and go into cash and into fixed income to get that yield capture. Well, guess what? Now, as you mentioned, we're down at a 389.10 year. And you know what? Maybe cash isn't as exciting when you have a market that's up 23%. I'm not saying the market's going to be up 23% again next year. In fact, I do worry that the growth will stay stronger for longer. And, yeah, maybe the Fed doesn't cut as much. But I do think profits will hang in there. And so we could have a pretty decent year for next year. Kenny, what about the inverted yield curve and the 20 consecutive months of declining leading indicators index? Right. And so we're almost going on. Do you realize it's going to be almost two years of that inverted yield curve? I think February, right? February 21 or February 22 is when they inverted, right? So we're almost going on two years of an inverted yield curve. So it seems to be why isn't that theory holding up that it was, you know, 12 to 16 months out when the cut, when the economy hit a recession, once the yield curve inverts? Well, we're now into almost 20 months of it, and we're still no recession in sight, soft landing in sight. I think a lot of that is because the Fed continues to – they just continue to print money, so they're really navigating that in. Why that doesn't seem to be uh, 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 hitting home with so many people is beyond me. But I think as long as they keep doing that, then they are, in fact, going to avoid the crash landing or at least put it off. Because I think ultimately when it crashes, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a tough landing. But they, they have succeeded in putting it off, and I think to your point – Next year, it's the presidential election year. Let's be honest. Oh. Kevin Hassett uh, was on the TV show this week. He just came right out and said it. I didn't say it. He said it first. 
Mild-mannered Ken Nassett just said, the Fed, the Fed is run by a bunch of Democrats and they're going to juice the economy for Biden. I just love it. Mild-mannered you know, Kevin Nassett said that. They're, um, they're going to juice the economy, but they're going to reignite. The, the fear with that is that they're going to reignite inflation, and then what do they do? Why is gold uh, so high, Ken Polcari? 2053. Why, if, if the Fed is so tight, why is gold so high? Well, because I, I think you've seen a, a real decline in the dollar. We've gone from 10, nearly 104 down. Uh, I think it closed on Friday at 101.50, uh, mm. which, which is a significant decline in the dollar. And if you look at gold and other commodities, with the decline in the dollar, the commodities have all rallied commensurate. Right? I think, I think uh, gold is up about 8% during that same time that we saw the dollar uh, fall in value, and if the dollar is falling in value, it's because the expectation is that they're going to cut rates. The dollar, you know, is going to be less attractive, so the dollar got weaker, and commodities then, in fact, uh, start to lift their head. I think I like gold. I like gold as an investment, and uh, I think if we continue to see the dollar weaken, then you'll see continued upside upside uh, surprises for gold and other commodities. By the way, one other thing, uh, Steph, Stephanie, the uh, Brent crude seventy nine bucks. You know, Middle East war, Red Sea war, but um, oil really hasn't done anything. I mean, it's come down. Let's face it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a big that's a big plus for this overall story. Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, I think that's what's helping the consumer for sure. All of the um, the the higher costs, commodity costs, everything is coming down. Supply chains are getting fixed, um, and I think not only is it going to help the consumer, but it helps. Uh, corporations as well. It's going to help the margin story for uh, for the S and P 500 companies that are reporting earnings. And most, I think, if you can stay in like a two two and a half percent GDP growth rate for next year, that's gonna that's fine for the top line for corporations um, in, in terms of revenues. And on the margin side, as I just as I just mentioned, I think margins are going to come in a little bit better than expected, given that they're you know the the, the interest rate. Are, are down and commodities are down and again, yeah, supply chains are fixed. So all of that thing, all of that kind of suggests that we have a pretty good earnings year. And if you have falling inflation with a core PCE at 3.2 percent, that supports higher multiples. If you put a 20 multiple on 2024 earnings for S and P 500 of 245, that gets you 4900 yeah. on, on the S and P. Hang on a second. I'm just looking. The S and P is forty-seven fifty-four. Is that that's not quite an all-time high, or is it? It's uh, at a, it's a, it is close to an all-time Almost. high. Very close. And thirty-seven three eighty-five is that an all-time high in the Dow? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's close. It's no, real I mean, close. you're close. You're close. close. You're close. Yeah. 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 I mean, no one was no one was talking about it a year ago. You know, everyone thought we were going. There were some there were some strategists thinking that we were going to thirty five hundred on the S and P. Yeah, yeah. Wait, but Stephanie, do you think that earnings can grow double digits, twelve percent, uh, like the like the market estimates at two forty five? Do you really think that's possible, or do you think it's a little bit rich? Well, I think anywhere from. Nine to eleven percent, yeah, something ten percent. I think it's very, it's very possible. Again, Kenny, if we stay at a better growth rate, and we yeah. have still have a consumer that's pretty healthy, and you have still, believe it or not, stimulus in the system, right? That infrastructure stuff is, is not yeah. even in to the economy, right? So if you have all that, so you have the industrial part of the economy doing well too. Like that's a nice momentum 
And I think, again, I think the margins, everyone's telling me or talking to me about, oh, margins are going to roll hard. People have been saying that for the last 10 years. <laughs> U.S. companies, if, if demand falls, starts to fall, companies will restructure so quickly. You know that just as well as I do. They will cut no, costs and do whatever they can. They're going to keep right. those margins elevated. And, and then, again, then you get all these other things that are in their favor on the cost side. I, I just I feel better about it. Right. Are you worried at all about the weakness that we saw, the weak guidance from three fairly big uh, companies, FedEx and, uh, and Nike and General Mills last week? So I would say uh, Nike has company-specific issues. Um, right. I think their innovation is lacking, to be honest. I'm a, I'm a, for example, I'm a runner, and I used to use Nike sneakers all the time. I went to Hoka. There's a lot of competition out there in the athleisure world. Um, and I think they, they're going to be just fine. But I do think th- that the company was cautious on guidance. <clears throat> and a lot of the, the reaction to the stock was because the stock rallied 37% from the lows into the print. So yeah. the quarter was in line. The guidance was a little soft. Okay. So not, not everything's perfect, but I do think there's some Nike specific. FedEx, same, same drill. It was up 62% year to date headed into the print. And, and their ground business is doing well, and their freight business is doing well. It's the express business that is not doing well, and I think UPS is actually taking share from them. General Mills, I'm a little bit bummed out about their pet food business. I personally have been supporting their pet food business with my four animals, but uh, you know, that, that, that one is uh, – that, that's the problem. The problem they have is they don't have pricing power as much as they had been. So I think you can – I think there are kind of these one-offs here. And uh, I think you're going to see better times ahead in terms of earnings going forward. I'm into New Balance myself. Ah. I love New Balance. They're I, great. By the way, New Balance, they have their sneaker shoes. They're like black. They're all black. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're basically sneakers. And But I wear, them, I wear them to work. I wear them on set. They're so comfortable. It's unbelievable. Okay. And they look, they look, you know, from a distance, they look like dress shoes. I have to I'm try. Sure. I haven't. New Balance is something that I haven't heard in years. Like I don't hear people talking about New Balance. I'm telling so you, it's a really. And I wear their <laughs> tennis sneakers all the time. I wear them to yeah. play tennis, and I wear them to jog. I jog around the flagpole up here in Connecticut. It's not a big <laughs> jog. It's a, it's a modest jog for you know an old fellow. Very important stuff. Uh, I'm you know I'm looking. The Cudlow Trust is doing very well. We're talking to Stephanie Link, Hightower Advisors and Investment Solutions. We're talking to Kenny Polcari of Case Capital Advisors and Sladestone Wealth. All is well in the stock market. I'm Cudlow. Merry Christmas. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. Back to the Larry Gudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower, at Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Kenny Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. So, kids, let's talk about 2024. 2023, great year for stocks, as it turns out. 2024, Stephanie Link, what do you make of it? All right, well, I think, as, I, as we talked about, I think growth will, will hang in there around 2% or so uh, for the economy. That should lead to decent revenues, margins will hold up, decent earnings. 
Um, I, as, we, as we mentioned, maybe 10% growth overall in earnings. Um, and I think some of the themes for 2024, I, I, one of my favorites, and we met, I touched on it, is housing. Uh, at lower rates, um, we've, we have 5 million homes short in the country. We have 5 million millennials just starting to buy homes, 13 years of the home builders underproducing. So I like the supply-demand characteristics there. Uh, in fact, in a recent purchase for me was Sherwin-Williams, but I think Home Depot will do well. I like I still like financials. I have. I think you're going to see a little bit of a steepening of the yield curve and less cash sorting. I like Charles Schwab there. And anything that's tied to aerospace or onshoring in the industrial industry, uh, industries, I like those very much. I have Boeing, GE, Parker Hannifin, Freeport McMoran. There's, uh, mm. there's a lot of good names out there. Mm. Wow. Uh, can you put, Karen, what about the AI play? So I think the AI play is, is here. It's not going away for sure. And it's only going to become more integral in our lives as, you know, as we move forward. You could see that almost weekly now, right? So I continue to like the AI play and cybersecurity for sure. Anything in that space, I think, is where you, uh, you need some exposure, however you get it, whether you get it through, uh, you know, thoughts uh, like C3.ai, which is, which is an AI play direct, or whether you get it through like CIBR, which is a cybersecurity ETF. Stephanie Link and Ken Polcari. Merry Christmas, kids. Merry Christmas. Thanks for everything. So we're going to take a quick break and do some money in politics on the other side. we got Liz Peak. we got Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. Merry Christmas. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. my favorite Christmas song, one of them anyway. I'm Larry Kudlow. I think I think I'm cousin Brucey, but I'm really Larry Kudlow. Welcome back everybody. We're gonna talk money and politics with Liz Peak, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist and Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and WABC radio host of More Money on most of these same stations. Welcome back kids. Merry Christmas to both of you. And I want to begin with Merry Christmas to the economy, right? The economy in 2023 outperformed the expectations of pretty much everybody. Not only was there no recession, it's probably going to wind up growing 3% or someplace around there. So I want to ask you guys about that. Election year influence? If Joe Biden had any brains, he'd quit Bidenomics. I don't know what that means, but... It just seems like the stock market roaring, the economy doing well, the jobs market holding up. So, Liz Peak, why is everybody down on Joe Biden's economy? <laughs> it looks, it looks yeah, pretty good to me. 
It's it's a good question, and I think the White House is absolutely going crazy trying to figure it out. Um, obviously, it's inflation, Larry. That's what really has been a focus of everybody for the last two years, and that could change. Uh, it, it could change in the sense that inflation really is coming down. There's no doubt about it. Uh, whether that resonates with people when they don't see prices coming down is unclear. I think everyone is still very much alert to the fact that everything costs 20% more than it did a couple of years ago, and not everyone has gotten a 20% raise. But I, I have to say the latest enthusiasm in the stock market in consumer spending is related, right? Because when the stock market goes up, uh, consumer net worth goes up, and con- confidence is a little bit better, and people start to spend, even though maybe in terms of debt and so forth, they should be pulling in their horns. But the crazy thing is the Fed is encouraging this. The Fed in the last few weeks has kind of gone from, oh, we're not even considering rate cuts, to, yeah, now there are three rate cuts uh, penciled in for next year, which has set off this huge drama in the stock market, where now uh, there's an 86% chance that rate cuts are going to start in March. So I, I don't know what Jay Powell was thinking, because that kind of works against this whole you know, effort to slow the economy and, and slow inflation. But that's where we are, and people are feeling really good, good about it. Well, as I said in the last segment, and Kevin Hassett said it on the show this past week, the Fed's got to juice the economy for Biden. The Democratic Fed's got to juice the economy for Biden. But, you know, Steve Moore, let's see, the PCE deflator last three months, 1.4% at an annual rate. The core is 2.2. So that's pretty good. Liz is right. Not all prices Mm -hmm. have come down. Uh, but the economy is stronger than most folks thought and um, doesn't seem to be helping Joe Biden, whose polls continue <laughs> to sink. It's a very interesting conundrum, Steve. Well, I think it's people are really working hard, like you are. I mean, I can't believe you're working today, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> neither can, neither can I. <laughs> and, and by the way, I hope your producer can get Santa Baby, because that's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll get it for the next uh, segment. Who did Santa Baby? <laughs> but, uh, look, I mean, it's it's impressive uh, what the, the recovery that's happened. And uh, so... Um, that's a good thing. I agree with Liz. I think the problem has been that uh, Americans, uh, you know, it's it really has been, you know, for people invested in the market and, uh, you know, for higher income people, it's been a, a great, great year. But, you know, lower and middle class, working class people are still suffering from the 20 percent rise in prices. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my uh, blessed wife, Ann, the other day, you know, was hearing me on radio shows like this talking about, you know, inflation is down to 3 or 4%. She literally grabbed me by the arm and she said, I'm taking you to the grocery store <laughs> <You're going laughs> with me to the hardware store because she says, you don't have no idea what things cost because she's the one who buys the things, not me. And, she, you know, what, $8.50 now for a box of uh, Wheaties? Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. So I, my point is I think people are still struggling. Uh, if they're living on a fixed income and those prices. So when Biden says the the price have come down, no, prices haven't come down. The rate of inflation has come down, but uh, people are still feeling that uh, fact. But one other thing, since this is Christmas, I mean, you just got to salute American businesses and small businesses and our companies. I, we talked last week about the Magnificent Seven. I mean, we just rock. We have great, great companies. We're an innovative, entrepreneurial economy, 
And I love it. We're out competing everybody, Larry. And by the way, um, tax rates remain relatively low. Most of the Trump tax cuts are still in place. It's not a small thing, and we forget about that. Uh, so this is still something of a supply-side economy. Biden has tried to overwhelm it with high regulations, uh, particularly fossil fuels, but also small business regulations. But the fact remains, he was unable to reverse and overthrow the uh, Trump tax cuts. And so you still have a low tax economy. However, Liz, if, you know, in recent months, wages have increased more than inflation. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, if that trend continues. I don't know that it will, but if it does, I'd say that's another issue. And one more point. We were looking at the Fox Business poll uh, for likely voters, likely caucus goers, in Iowa, and the issue, economy is still the top issue, but it's fallen about 10 points from where it was in September. The new hottest issue, uh, which is up about a dozen points, is the border. Yeah. And Biden is very, very vulnerable on the border. In fact, he's down in Mexico begging Obrador to help him on the border because he can't help himself. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Americans are really horrified the numbers just get worse and worse, and Biden has trotted out a couple of sort of half measures uh, attempting to cut down on the numbers, and it just hasn't made any, made any difference. And I think, you know, um, we all were very alert to the fact that there were migrants being shipped to New York and to Chicago and Philadelphia and so forth, but, now, but the numbers now have become undeniable. I mean, you can't live in these cities without being very aware of the impact of an open border has had on our economy and on our cities. And, you know, uh, it is, I just think it's unconscionable. It is the one thing that this government did right when they came into office and were determined to undo everything Trump did, even if those were good things, even if they had a positive outcome. He just willy-nilly tore up the, the playbook and now he's suffering the consequences. And, Larry, he deserves to. He has made not a single move to rectify this. And the astonishing thing to me is that Republicans have given him an offer. Here's mm-hmm. a deal. We're going to put through some tighter measures, nothing draconian, but something to maybe get this situation under control. And then you can have the money you really, really want and need for Ukraine and Israel. And Joe Biden won't budge. What is wrong with the man? I, this seems like a political gift at Christmas time, and Biden, Biden's going to go off to the Caribbean for a week and, you know, relax because it's been a, such a stressful thing for him. I mean, can honestly, he, I can't can get, get my head around it. Can he get back? <laughs> if he goes to the Caribbean, can he get back? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> really. Really. He's, he's going to have to get – he'll go through the fence. You know, a lot of Americans have gone through the fences because <laughs> the ports of entry have all been closed I mean, I say I'm laughing, but there's a lot of truth in that. That's what the numbers show. You know, Steve Moore, uh, let's see, three, four years ago, four and a half years ago, um, President Obrador wouldn't help Donald Trump on the border. So Trump Mm -hmm. said, I'll double your car tariffs. I'll double your manufacturing tariffs. We're your biggest market, and you're going to see an economic collapse. Now, Joe Biden doesn't have the backbone to do that kind of thing. So he's on bended knee this weekend. He's on bended knee with the Obrador. I think that's pretty pathetic. 
Look, does anybody actually, I mean, Liz is right. Biden doesn't want to control the border. No. Yeah. That's right. He doesn't want, yeah. So, that's you know, right. this is all make-believe. They wanted an out-of-control border. They really do. And by the way, you're talking to a very pro-immigration person. I, I've said it so many times on your show. I think immigrants are absolutely vital to our economy. But, my gosh, he's undermining our legal immigration system. He's undermining our um you know, it, it, it's inhumane what he's doing. These, I mean, you see these tens of thousands of people lined up on the other side of the border, and it's just it, it breaks your heart what he's doing to these people. It's, it doesn't help anyone, um, and it's under as I said, it's undermining. And, and for him to say, "Oh, we're going to make a deal with the Republicans," no, he's not. I mean, yeah. it's pretty clear. No American wants a deal until until. We have the border secure. Mm. Ronald, I mean, mm. everybody knows that. And, and he's saying, oh, first we're going to have an amnesty and then we're going to fix the border. No way. Yeah, well, I think if he were smart, they're not smart. The left wing of the party controls it. You know, um, I heard Fox News last night. We were driving up here and um, minority groups, blacks in particular, this came out of Chicago, actually. But blacks are furious at this because they feel like they're losing jobs. They feel like their wages are uh, falling because of the cheap labor from the illegal immigrants. And Trump is going to campaign in Illinois, and Trump is going to campaign in New York. It's very interesting. And he's going to campaign on the border, Liz. How about those apples? Well, you know, don't forget, we have a Republican majority in the House partly because of New York, or maybe largely because of New York, flipping some seats. And I think it was really important to the Republican Party to keep that. But he's not crazy. I mean, you know, other than New York City uh, kind of intractable Democrats and progressives, New York voters are sick to death of what's happening here, and they're leaving the state. I mean, that, you know, we had another blow this week showing the number of, what was it, 217,000 people leaving New York. And these are productive people who pay taxes, Larry. So you would think at some point Democrats would say, you know, this isn't great for us because we're losing seats in the legis- in, in Congress because New York is shrinking, California is shrinking, and Republicans are gaining those seats uh, because people are moving. At some point, don't they have to pay attention to that? Does that affect the November election? The I don't think seats? I don't think there's going to be a change between no. – it has to be with a census, and we've yeah. already had that, right, uh, Steve? I think maybe you know this more than I do. Steve? Steve. We lost I, Steve. I think the timing of it, Larry, is, is like every 10 years or something like that, but the trends are underway, and it won't help Democrats to, to have this seepage – of people out of the states that they control. I think it's kind of astonishing. And unfortunately, they have one playbook. If things get worse financially in a state like New York, where we have this now $12 billion problem with migrants, feeding and housing migrants because we have a sanctuary city problem, uh, then their only playbook is to raise taxes. And you're already hearing talk of that. And, of course, what does that do? Anyone who's sort of on the margin says, you know what, I'm out of here. And, by the way, I've heard several people say in the last week, reparations in New York? Are you kidding me? What are they thinking? That happens. I am definitely out of here. Well, Andrew Cuomo is going to be the next mayor. I saw that. Yeah, Andrew Cuomo. The Cuomo's just never seemed to go away, no matter how much they screw up things. 
That's just what New York needs. We really, Andrew Cuomo is the next mayor. Be kind of cool. Anyway, I'm Cudlow. Merry Christmas. We got Liz Peak. We got Steve Moore. We're going to have the Ronettes on the other side, and maybe we're going to have another Christmas jingle. I'm Cudlow. I'm not Cousin Brucey, but you never know how things are going to shake out. We'll be right back after this. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. All right, we're spinning the discs for Steve Moore. Actually, I like that, Santa baby. I like that a lot. I always wanted to be, I want to be Cousin Brucey, but I'm still cuddling. Yeah. By anyway, the way, my, we, favorite, my favorite line in that uh, song is, uh, another thing I want is a ring, and not the one on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and radio host of More Money after this show on many of these same stations, and Liz Peak, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. So we've got a few minutes left. Um, there's an interesting headline in the New York Sun. Who lost U.S. Steel? It's kind mm. of an interesting story. I had uh, Bob Lighthizer on the show this past week. I had Wilbur Ross on the show. They were uh, the authors of the um, of the steel uh, and aluminum tariffs, uh, which Steve Moore and I and Art Laffer opposed. In fact, we showed the National Review article, Steve, that we wrote uh, <laughs> five years ago. Five years yeah. plus, Arthur was on. Yeah. We were yeah. right about it. But it is interesting... Uh, Nippon Steel of Japan is buying U.S. steel. You got a big revolt here, uh, bipartisan. You got Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, and you got J.D. Vance, and you got Hawley, and you got uh, Rubio, Marco Rubio. Uh, they don't want the deal to go through. I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a Scythius, uh yeah. internal uh, uh, debate about this a committee uh, for, on foreign investment. Um, the idea here is friend shoring. It's not exactly offshoring, but it's not onshoring either. Uh, how important is this, Steve Moore? What do you make of it? Well, I think the lesson here is that whenever you get the government subsidizing or trying to artificially inflate a, uh, a sector of the economy, and that was true of the automobile industry, the steel industry, uh, it's true, by the way, now of green energy, it's the surest way to failure. <laughs> and so the free market works. We can produce steel in this country. We can produce cars in this country. If the government would get the hell out of the way. If I were uh, Donald Trump, what I would say is, look, let's get back to my policies of low taxes. How about, uh, you know, when you said that there were no tax increases this year, you were right. But you know what happens on, uh, on January 1st is that some of that expensing, yeah. provision which allows companies to write off their capital investment goes away so that's that's only gonna make it harder for companies to invest what's well, in the United second States. year just it's um they yeah. lost 20 percent of it and they and lose they, another 20 yeah. percent so yeah that's yeah, and then eventually eventually uh, under biden's plan it goes away 
So my mm-hmm. point is, rather than subsidizing these industries or giving giving them tariffs, why don't we just encourage have a have an environment that encourages investment in the United States? It worked for Trump. How much money did we bring back in, Larry? Over a trillion dollars. About a trillion, yeah, over yeah. a trillion. But Liz um, Lighthizer made a good point, and it's in the New York Sun editorial. You know, China, uh, which is using its state subsidies to finance steel, and they undercut everybody with low prices because of that. Nippon steel, by the way, is interesting. I know Japan is a friendly country and a great ally of America's, of course, but Nippon steel produces a lot of its steel in China, which gets the benefit of these subsidies. So this is a pretty tricky question on national security grounds as well as trade grounds. But but we will be maintaining our steel-making presence through this deal, right? I mean, the factories aren't going to close, presumably, in the United States, because then why would they be doing this deal? Yeah. You know, they're so, going to keep but, the – yes, there's 11,000 union workers uh, plus, yes. They will, they will stay open. I mean, my, my view of some of these things – I agree with Steve. It just seems to me like every time the government – is subsidizing another industry. And by the way, the latest one I would cite is the semiconductor business. I have no idea why we had to allocate $50 billion of taxpayer money (laughs) to the most profitable industry in the world, and one which, by the way, wanted to produce in the United States because a lot of production is in Taiwan, which is in a precarious political, Mm -hmm. geopolitical situation. Mm -hmm. There's no mystery about why the United States should be uh, attractive to manufacturing. And by the way, one of the things we haven't mentioned, incredibly important to the steelmaking industry, is power. We have cheap power. If you look at us compared to Germany, for example, our power costs are anywhere from half to one quarter of mm-hmm. what Germany's are. So, you know, I, I think company, a country like Japan looks around the world, they say, okay, where is there a trained workforce, uh, a huge domestic market, cheap power, uh, and, you know, a government that is sort of mildly cognizant of trying to keep businesses going, the United States seems like a good bet. The other obvious <laughs> industry that's a problem is the EV industry. And I noticed uh, in the FT there was a story about uh, China looking at building factories in Mexico. Whatever we do to protect an industry, they're going to find a way around it. And it's well. really a lost cause. Merry Christmas, be... Larry. Merry Christmas <laughs> to you. Christmas Merry Christmas to Liz. You're both fabulous. All units, to the technology units, to some of our crowd control units, uh, to also our medical. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.